Today on Against the Grain. Following the attacks of September 11th, the administration of George W. Bush instituted the widespread use of coercive interrogations of detainees, as well as kidnapping, forced disappearance, and sham commission proceedings. Yet for the first several years of the so-called War on Terror, little was known about what the U.S. state was doing to prisoners, until hundreds of lawyers, some from the left, but others even from the military itself, challenged the U.S. government in court. Sociologist Lisa Hajar describes the legal fight against torture and its legacy now. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The war on terror unleashed a violence that was hidden from view. Of detentions, torture, and the disappearance of enemy combatants under the assertion that detainees had no rights. But through legal action, lawyers were able to start pulling the cover back on U.S. torture with far-ranging effects. Lisa Hajar is professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara and an editor at Jadalia. She's written extensively on torture, including by the Israeli state. In her latest work, written over the course of 20 years, she examines the legal struggle against U.S. torture following September 11th and its unexpected consequences today in the form of increased targeted assassinations of purported state enemies. That book is called The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture. I'd like to start with Bush's War on Terror, in which the use of torture was sanctioned, the subject of your book, Lisa. Was it, in fact, an unprecedented move by the U.S. government? Well, it's not like the United States has never engaged in torture before, but there was what was unique about what happened, you know, what the Bush administration initiated with the war on terror was an official government policy to torture. And it was supported by uh, legal rationales by government lawyers. And so both the legalization of torture and the fact that it was not just some sort of secret clandestine practice by the CIA or other security um, agencies or, you know, soldiers, for example, in the Philippines, you know, where there was a significant amount of torture when the U.S. was at war in the Philippines. But this was actually a policy of torture. And it really, the idea to uh, initiate or inaugurate a policy of torturing people who would be captured preceded you know, even the first detail people being captured in the context of the war itself. So they, you know, the the administration, particularly uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, really convinced himself and a group of right wing lawyers uh, close to him, his legal counsel, David Addington, and uh, several some lawyers in um, the White House, the Pentagon and the um, and the Justice Department who called themselves the War Council, really were persuaded that the only way to get actionable intelligence from the nefarious enemies who had perpetrated 9-11 would be to use violence and coercion. You note that the right not to be tortured is the most universal of human rights. Can you explain why that is? Sure. Well, first of all, just what torture, torture refers to purposefully harming someone either physically or psychologically who is in custody. So that custodial relationship is all important for distinguishing torture from all other kinds of violence. And so when someone is in custody, that is, you know, the most vulnerable a human being can be in relationship to a government or a public authority. I mean, it's not only states that torture. And so therefore, you know, the right not to be tortured is absolutely prohibited. So there's no condition under any circumstances where anyone, any institution has a right to torture. And so I contrast that to even something that one we could sort of logically think is more important or as important, like the right to life. But there are many ways in which people legally can be killed or circumstances when killing is not a crime, but there's never a circumstance when torture is legal. And so therefore it's always an illegal 
act. But what the Bush administration then tried to do was legalize it through interpreting the law. And I, the one thing I compare, I mean, I say that torture is the most universal right that people have because every single person you know, ev you know, everywhere and under all circumstances has that right. And the only other right that compares to it is the right not to be enslaved. So you were mentioning the genesis of the U.S. policy around torture right at the beginning of the so-called war on terror before anyone was detained. How did the ideas that were put into play develop? Were these right-wing people around Dick Cheney already predisposed to having this kind of outlook? Yes. Well, I mean, one of the really critical things, and this is the larger context for not only the torture policy, but many um, unprecedented aspects of the war on terror. Cheney, since the 19, um, late 1970s, was very hostile to the kind of post-Watergate, post-Cointelpro, post-Vietnam, uh, you know, limits that had been imposed upon the presidency. And so he was very intent on dialing those kind of restrictions back. It's something called the unitary executive thesis. So even before 9-11, he had come into office as vice president with the goal of what he would call restoring the president, the president's power. And so 9-11 and the beginning of the war on terror provided an opportunity to do just that. And what it meant was devising policies that would not be subject to, you know, the president would not be bound by any laws, that the that um, the White House policies would not be subject to oversight or judicial intervention. So all of those, um, you know, unitary executive thesis notions were kind of the building blocks for the policies that were then established. And so we look at the policies or sort of the development of the torture policy, there's just a couple of really critical um, events. I mean, one of them was the, um, you know, sort of the real starting point was President Bush's November 13th, 2001 military order. And that order was actually written by Dick Cheney's counsel, David Addington. And the, that was the order that basically decreed that anyone abroad, any foreigner abroad who was taken into U.S. custody would have no rights whatsoever. They could not challenge their detention. Uh, uh, they could not challenge their how they would be treated. And it was also the order where Bush kind of pronounces the creation of military commissions to try whomever the government would want to try, and that these military commissions would not be subject to the laws. So that was absolutely a critical starting point. And the, the date, November 13, 2001, was not coincidentally the date that um, the US ally in, in Afghanistan, the Northern Alliance, uh, took control of Kabul. And so it was that day when um, detention and capture and detention operations start escalating. But then um, it, throughout November, December, you have, and even into early January, inside the administration, uh, there was sort of a, you know, a push on the part of Cheney, Addington, and the so-called War Council lawyers, including one person who plays a very important role in this was John Yoo, who now is, of course, a professor at, of law at Berkeley, um, but he was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel during that time. And they basically persuaded themselves that the president has the authority to declare that the Geneva Conventions do not apply. You know, so they were basically giving themselves a license to, you know, perpetrate war crimes on the grounds, you know, no crime without law. And there was a there was an internal fight within um, the administration, specifically then Secretary of State Colin Powell and the State Department's um, general counsel, William Taft, pushed back saying, you can't wage a war outside of the laws of war. I mean, that's, you know, crazy, but they lost and President Bush 
on February 7, 2002, basically issued another order saying that the Geneva Conventions don't apply to uh, anybody, Al-Qaeda or Taliban. And so the combination of that November 13th order and the February 7th order basically meant that anybody who was in custody was presumptively a terrorist because they had no way to challenge their um, detention and that, that, that no laws would apply to them. So U.S. interrogators and soldiers and others could treat them any way the president deemed fit. To what extent was the use of torture and forced confession of Palestinians by the Israeli government, something that you've studied yourself, a model for U.S. torture during the so-called war on terror? Israel had the ignominious um, position of, in 1987, being the first government in the world to publicly declare, you know, that the government had the prerogative to engage in torture, although they euphemized it as moderate physical pressure. Um, and so torture was had been since 1971, you know, extensively practiced against Palestinians. But in 1987, going forward, it was basically, you know, sort of a legal argument that the that the government accepted, the Israeli government accepted, was that under, you know, you know, in the fight against hostile terrorist activity, any kind of practices that are necessary to keep the state and its Jewish citizens safe would be legitimate. So it was a sort of legalization process. There's many things that differ between, I mean, sort of the purpose of Israeli torture of Palestinians was part of their larger control strategies in the occupied territories, namely to get people um, imprisoned through, you know, capture, uh, torture for confessions, conviction on the basis of those confessions and imprisonment. But so the one way in which Israel was very much a model for what happened in the United States after 9-11 was those kind of legal arguments, the necessity and therefore the legitimacy of coercive interrogations and, um, you know, sort of the rightlessness of people who were subjected to those things. So I would say that's where you see the real um, overlap is, is the part of governments to quote unquote legalize the absolutely illegal through interpretations of the law. What would you say is actually for the United States government was the purpose of this torture before we go further into how it was opposed? Forcing information from people under extreme coercion and violence turns out, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, to be very unreliable. Do you think they believed otherwise, or was there another motivation here? Well, that's a great question. The, you know, first of all, Cheney has no military experience and no knowledge of interrogation, nor did any of the people around him. And so it was really just this presumption that the only way you're going to get information from these kinds of people whom they didn't even know exactly who they were at war with at the beginning would be to, you know, sort of hold them incommunicado and just really squeeze them for, for so-called actionable intelligence. And it was this, um, so you know, the war on terror really began as a war for information. Um, and this is, that's not atypical for what we would call asymmetric wars when states are warring against non-state entities because, you know, the only way to find out, you know, the enemy is sort of to capture people and gather human intelligence from them. But because the United States literally didn't know who they were looking for or what was going on, so many people, thousands of people get swept up, sold for bounty to U.S. forces in Afghanistan, picked up, you know, in Pakistan and elsewhere. And, you know, on the assumption that we need information, these guys appear to be guilty. And then they start being, you know, coercively interrogated um, and tortured. And then whatever kinds of statements, much of which, as we now know very well, were just a lot of false statements and inaccuracies because people don't, you know, it's like when people are being tortured, they'll say anything to, you know, try and make the the pain stop. But then furthering this paradox, it was, you know, something about the hubris of the administration thinking that both they were doing things to keep America safe or to make advances against their terrorist enemies, and then whatever people would say under torture then come to be treated as true for the further justification of their continued detention, 
and so on. So it just was this cycle of, you know, starting off with a, an absurdity and then building policy on that basis and the inability to recognize truth from fiction. You know, so I think that's one of the most like the big, big takeaways of the, you know, aside from the human cost of people who were tortured, the cost of, you know, trying to wage a war with these false presumptions. Sociologist Lisa Hajar is my guest. We're talking about her book, The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I wonder if you could lay out what took place around the world under the war on terror, under this official embrace of torture by the U.S. government in the first two years uh, leading up till 2004, when people in the United States really were utterly in the dark about what was going on. If you were to paint us a picture of what it looked like, how did it look? So there were really, you know, initially three sort of connected, but, you know, in distinct tracks. So one was military um, detention and interrogation in Afghanistan. That begins, you know, in November of 2001. Guantanamo was selected as the site for long-term interrogation of so-called unlawful uh, enemy combatants. The first prisoners arrive in Guantanamo in, on January 11th, 2002. And that Guantanamo was literally set up to be what they called an interrogation laboratory to basically to interrogate whoever ended up at Guantanamo for months and months until, you know, just you know, they literally believed it was like a factory for intelligence. The third track was the CIA. You know, on, on September 16th, um, Bush secretly authorized the CIA to embark on a killer capture mission. And so the Bush administration paramilitarized this civilian agency, and their, uh, their task was to go after the so-called high-value suspects. And so they started you know, kidnapping and disappearing people in December and January. But the CIA torture program really kicks off on March 28, 2002, when they take into custody someone named Abu Zubaydah, whom they assumed, as it turned out incorrectly, that he was the number three in Al-Qaeda. And so they ferry, you know, ferry him off to uh, the first secret black site or that is a secret prison in Thailand. And then that's, you know, they used Abu Zubaydah essentially to hone the torture techniques that then become the CIA's brand uh, of torture. And those techniques subsequently then revert back to the military. And the military begins using those techniques, you know, with the so-called um, reverse engineered SEER technique. So that stands for survival, evasion, resistance, escape technique. Those are the techniques that were developed to train U.S. soldiers how to withstand torture in case they were captured by a regime that didn't abide by the Geneva Conventions. And so the the Bush administration reverse engineered those techniques for interrogation. And then, of course, once the United States um, decides to invade and occupy Iraq, they then also, quote, migrate to Iraq as well. 2004 was really... I'm not sure if a turning point is exactly the word, but 2004 broke the almost complete lack of information about what was going on with U.S. torture in several ways. But uh, starting with the release of the photos from Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, which showed prisoners being humiliated and tortured by U.S. personnel, what was the effect of the circulation of those photos? You're absolutely correct. Everything was secret about what the, you know, what, how prisoners were being treated in any of these, you know, Afghanistan, Guantanamo, and Iraq until the Abu Ghraib photos. And what I, um, you know, the way in which I would account for this is that there was a trifecta of events that had very significant political consequences. So the Abu Ghraib photos, which were made public on April 28, 2004, immediately created an international scandal. And, you know, because it, among other things, it, you know, sort of openly, clearly 
you know, showed that the administration had been lying when they said that they did not engage in torture and that all detainees were treated humanely. That scandal then motivated Congress to begin um, having hearings. They called military and civilian officials to come and answer questions about what was really going on in U.S. detention facilities in the war on terror throughout May of 2004. And that political pressure uh, induced the administration to release a few legal memos and policy documents, you know, including what the most outrageous document, which was authored by um, John Yu when he was working for the OLC, which had basically given the CIA sort of both the, the license and the legal rationale to engage in torture. That was the August 1, 2002 memo. And so when those memos came out, they were instantly and very correctly branded the torture memos because what they revealed was that there was, not only was the government lying about humane treatment, but that there was a torture policy that had been authorized from the top and it had been varnished with legal opinions by government lawyers. And so those memos um, sort of become public in early June. And then the third event in the trifecta um, that changes the whole discourse was a case. It's called it's the Rasul v. Bush case that the Supreme Court decided on June 28, 2004. But just to provide a context, that case was um, initially brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights in February 2002, so less than six months after 9-11. And the case challenged the president's right to secretly detain people at Guantanamo. The case lost in the lower courts, lost on appeal, but then it got to the Supreme Court and it was a very significant uh, decision. The Supreme Court ruled against the Bush administration and said detainees at Guantanamo have the right to habeas corpus and therefore they can challenge their detention in federal court. And so it was the confluence of the Abu Ghraib scandal, the torture memos, and this decision that had an effect that really occupies a, a big part of my book, which is a lot of angry lawyers, you know, lawyers who were shocked and disgusted that the government had authorized torture, had, you know, um, you know, manipulated the law. And so after the Supreme Court ruling, like dozens and then hundreds of lawyers volunteered to start representing uh, detainees at Guantanamo as their habeas counsel. And once you start getting lawyers going to Guantanamo and meeting people who'd been secretly detained and tortured for years, you know, the whole house starts falling down. Well, who were these lawyers who stepped up to challenge the government on torture? I mean, this was a time where there was a great sort of backlash against criticizing the U.S. government around the war on terror. And although there was activism, you know, a lot of it was muted. So who were these people who decided to put themselves forward to represent detainees? One of the things I tell in the book is, you know, the origin story of the Rasul case. So the first lawyers, I mean, Michael, the late Michael Ratner, who was the uh, executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. I mean, he has a long history of challenging government abuse. I mean, that's basically was his entire career. And so he, you know, was angered and upset you know, by the fact that the president had claimed the right to secretly detain people. But it was also the fact that the administration had chosen Guantanamo because Michael Ratner in the 1990s had been part of a legal team that fought first the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration over using Guantanamo and in very inhumane conditions to hold uh, Haitians who were fleeing political violence in Haiti. So when he and C CCR decided they were going to challenge this policy. And so soon after 9-11, like very few people were willing, people, you know, most people, as they said, their friends and allies just thought they were crazy. But the lawyers who joined uh, Ratner and CCR immediately were two death penalty lawyers, Joseph Margulis and Clive Stafford Smith. So they teamed up with um, CCR to bring Rasul. They also brought on um, a law professor, Eric Friedman from Fordham University, who's an expert on habeas corpus. And so that was, they were, you know, sort of this 
band of, of, you know, challengers to executive excess, but they were really alone. But the interesting thing, you know, in terms of who these lawyers are, was in, around this time that they filed the case, Rasul v. Bush, in February of 2002, the Kuwaiti government reached out to Tom Wilner, who was a senior partner in a prestigious, you know, law firm called Shearman and Sterling, you know, and the Kuwaiti government wanted help because there were 12 Kuwaitis who had ended up in Guantanamo. And, and the Kuwaiti government knew Sherman and Sterling because that law firm did a lot of business in the Gulf. And so Wilner goes to Kuwait, meets with the families of the people who've been disappeared to Guantanamo, and decides that these people were swept up by mistake. And so he kind of bucks his own law firm, which didn't want to, you know, go against the president at a time of war. But he files another uh, similar lawsuit on May 1st. And then it's called El Ode of the United States government. So those were the two cases that kind of moved forward and they were merged by the Supreme Court, um, you know, when they when the Supreme Court ruled on Rasul. But it was after Rasul, you start getting lawyers who are, start volunteering for this work from every walk of the profession. There were corporate lawyers, there were human rights lawyers, there were family law practitioners, there were law professors and their students. It was really, I think it was just the fact that it was the legalization of a crime and the manipulations of law that really exercised lawyers. And so when we really look back on this whole period, the fight against torture is a fight waged by lawyers on the legal terrain against against government policies. I would also add, though, that there's another um, fascinating uh, development that really had no precedence, at least uh, you know, in the era since the you know po- the World War II, was military lawyers, military lawyers who were a, a small number who were assigned, you know, starting in 2003 when the admit- Bush administration decided to start lining up some Guantanamo detainees to be prosecuted in the military commissions. And so a couple of detainees were selected for prosecution and a couple of military lawyers were assigned to defend them. And these military lawyers, when they saw what was, you know, both how detainees were, their their clients were actually being treated and the complete breach of military and constitutional law in the constant in the military commissions they decided to fight the administration as well and that really i think took the bush administration by surprise because they had believed like many people and i would actually put myself in this category that soldiers are just going to obey their orders and do whatever but these military lawyers really played an incredible role in standing up for the Constitution um, by fighting the administration. And so you get, you know, around this period, an an unprecedented military-civilian alliance, you know, sort of operating on different um, fronts, but really working in tandem to push back against illegal government policies. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. We're discussing today the history of the legal fight against torture in the courts following the War on Terror or the initiation of the War on Terror. I'm speaking with Lisa Hajar. She is professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. And her book is The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture. That's a UC Press publication. So you have been describing the case, Rasul versus Bush, which was initiated by Michael Ratner in the Center for Constitutional Rights. And yet there were a number of other cases that followed. And you argue that these cases over U.S. government torture built on each other. Can you tell us about Hamdan versus Rumsfeld and how uh, you see that as building on the, the prior case? So Hamdan v. Rumsfeld was the second major case that ends up in um, the Supreme Court. That was the case that was brought by one of these military defense lawyers, Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift, and he teamed up with Georgetown law professor Neil Katyal to challenge Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense, to challenge the the legality of the military commissions. And and so Hamdan was Swift's client. It was Salim Hamdan. He was you know, this Yemeni who had ended up in Afghanistan in the 1990s and, and 
was a driver for Osama bin Laden. So hardly, you know, a, a terrorist mastermind. So again, like the Rasul case, the lower courts just were not prepared for policy, you know, executive branch policies that were so off the rails from anything that had ever been done in the past. So the Rumsfeld, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld case lost in the lower courts. And when it made it to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided that case in June of 2006. And that was a major case. First of all, the Supreme Court or the majority decided, you know, that the, that, um, Swift and Katyal were correct. The, the military commissions were unconstitutional. They violated the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Therefore, they were out, you know, because they had been created by presidential fiat, you know, the November 13, 2001 order. But the more significant finding in the Hamdan v. Rumsfeld case was that the court found that, in fact, contrary to what the Bush administration had claimed, prisoners are covered by the Geneva Conventions. They are covered at least by common Article 3, which categorically prohibits torture, cruel treatment, and outrages on human dignity. And those and the court pointed out that those things are war crimes. And so the Hamdan decision, which I write about in my book, said it killed the torture program, although it was deprived of a proper burial for several years. And so it was a result of that Hamdan v. Rumsfeld decision that forced the Bush administration to, you know, close the CIA black site. So in September of 2006, President Bush gives this, you know, press conference in which he criticizes the Supreme Court for overstepping its bounds and tying the hands of the executive. And he then, for the first time, publicly acknowledges that the CIA was running a secret detention um you know, an interrogation program, but he claims that it was great and it kept America safe and it produced all kinds of brilliant and wonderful intelligence. But because of the court decision, they had to, you know, they, they couldn't keep, the CIA couldn't keep doing what it was doing. And so in September of 2006, 14 of the many, you know, I think 118 people would ever been in CIA custody, but 14 were brought from black sites to Guantanamo, including um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And so with that move, then the Bush administration, um, you know, really wanted to recoup or re resuscitate the military commissions that the Supreme Court had just demolished in, 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 Ju in June. And so the Republican-controlled Congress passed the Military Commissions Act in October of 2006, which basically recreated the commissions, permit, you know, this now it was congressional, um, a, a congressional buy-in for the permissibility to use coerced statements at trial. And the other thing that the Military Commission Act of 2006 did, which is really, I mean, it, and this thing remains on the books, was to basically grant what they call ex post facto immunity for any American, whether official or agent of the state, who'd, vi who'd perpetrated war crimes going back to 1997. So it basically made legal accountability impossible. Well, tell us more about these military commissions that were then resurrected by Congress. You visited Guantanamo multiple times. Can you tell us about the military commissions that operated there? Sure. So we can think about the military commissions in three phases. Before Hamdan, the administration of the Bush administration attempted to prosecute some people, including Salim Hamdan. Um, there was a handful of cases. All of them fell apart because, you know, either prosecutors, military prosecutors were unwilling to go along with, you know, the use of coerced evidence um, or, you know, just the faultiness or the weakness of the cases. Plus, there was a lot of political pressure on prosecutors to bring heavy charges of made up, invented war crimes, etc. Um, and then you have Hamdan, after the Military Commission Act is passed, the Bush administration attempts to restart, you know, re, you know, brings back um, the prosecution of people now under the not even modified, but congressionally endorsed sanction, um, you know, and so, but again, a handful of cases that were, um, 
you know, prosecuted literally a handful. Like you could have, you know, you could count them on two hands with fingers left over. But the significant case that um, the Bush administration tried to prosecute before Bush was out of office in 2008 was the case against five people accused of um, playing roles in the 9-11 attacks, all five of whom had been in CIA custody, you know, disappeared and tortured for years before they were brought to Guantanamo. And what happened, you know, I think the Bush administration still drinking its own Kool-Aid believed that, you know, they arraigned these guys in um, in 2007 and they thought they could like put them on trial, get uh, guilty verdicts and execute them before Bush left office um, in, you know, at the beginning of 2009. But what happened um, was that, that case also fell apart in its first iteration when um, in December of 2008, the five uh, defendants, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four others, basically told the judge that they would be willing to plead guilty on the condition that they go directly to execution. So it was like they were trying to do, you know, martyrdom by military commission. But that was one scenario that the Military Commission Act had not envisioned. And so the case fell apart. And then when Ob Barack Obama becomes president, you know, he had campaigned on a promise to restore the rule of law and end torture and, you know, close Guantanamo, et cetera. So he, on his sec on his first full day in office, he, um, uh, you know, sort of passed three executive orders, um, you know, one of which was closing um, uh, or, you know, really taking the CIA out of the interrogation and detention business. You know, and so in 2009, the Obama administration announced plans that they wanted to actually prosecute these the 9/11, um, the five 9/11 defend accused in federal court. And so, you know, in November of 2009, they made this announcement, and then, you know. That plan, which had previously had the um, endorsement of New York City and state officials, you know, right-wing politicians and pundits go bananas, and the Obama administration being what it did, and with Rahm Emanuel as chief of staff, they just abandoned their own plan, and then, you know, ultimately there was no place to try these guys other than the military commission. So the Obama administration and a democratically controlled Congress passed a revised Military Commissions Act in 2009, only mod moderately uh, revised. And so the 9-11 um, suspects were uh, then rearranged in 2012, and that's when their case began, but it's now <laughs> 2022, and they have not even... Uh, they never didn't move beyond the pretrial phase, a decade of pretrial battles between the teams of defense lawyers for the five defendants versus the prosecutors. And, and really the reason is because that case more than any other raises the question, is it possible to even have a legal process that appears to be just when the defendants were tortured for years and their torture remains a state secret. So that's really been why there has been no conclusion and no justice for the 9-11 case. And most of the other military commission cases just absolutely fell, fell apart. There's only one conviction that has stood up and, and on rather faulty grounds. One guy, an al-Qaeda um, propagandist, Ali al-Bahloul, was, uh, you know, he boycotted his trial. He was found guilty and given a life sentence. And so, and he, so when the um, the very few uh, convictions in the military commissions that did occur ultimately made it to appeal in the federal courts, the charges that people were convicted of were determined to be fake, made up, you know, and so all of those guilty verdicts were set aside. So the military commissions have just been, you know, a complex <laughs> debacle that is still, uh, you know, ongoing. And I want to ask you more about the sort of the afterlife of all of this. But you were uh, talking about how cases brought during the Bush administration against the use of torture by the U.S. state built on each other. And I wanted to ask you, So, and you were describing Hamdan versus Rumsfeld. Can you tell us about Boumediene versus Bush and the consequences of that lawsuit? If we go back and think like Rasul, the Rasul decision basically said Guantanamo detainees cannot be secretly detained. They have a right to challenge their detention in federal court. The Bush administration 
did not accept that, did not accept the finding that people detained at Guantanamo have legally enforceable rights. And so they fought, you know, and put up all kinds of different kinds of roadblocks. But the lawyers who were volunteering to be habeas counsel, you know, start going to Guantanamo in 2004 and numbers increase, et cetera. This was a so-called um, Guantanamo Bay Bar Association. That's what they called their endeavor. But when c cases were, um, you know, the, were the first um, court to hear habeas petitions was the, um, the Washington, D.C. District Court. And so uh, detainees, you know, the courts were finding that the evidence that the government was using to justify continuing detention did not hold up. And so they were basically, um, you know, the government was ordered to release these people on the grounds that they were unjustly detained. But this is where politics and partisanship really matters because the DC Circuit Court, the Court of Appeals, was really and you know heavily tilted to the right. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh was on that court at the time. And the Circuit Court did not want any court-ordered release of detainees. And so the, the circuit court would just overturn all of the, um, the the lower court's rulings that people should be released. And so that that's one circumstance. But what happened, and I, I know this is a little sort of wonky, but um, certain, you know, politicians, and I would say like Lindsey Graham played a major role in this, they did not want they wanted to roll back whatever the Supreme Court had found in the way of rights for detainees. And so Lindsey Graham was adamant that the courts should basically do what Dick Cheney had wanted them to do, that they should not have jurisdiction over what the president was doing or ordering overseas. And so... Um, the you know Congress passed something called the Detainee Treatment Act, which attempted to strip federal courts of all jurisdiction over anyone held at Guantanamo. But that law contradicted the Rasul decision, which said that these people have habeas rights. And so the Boumediene case was you know brought to basically ask the Supreme Court decide: Did Congress violate the Constitution by passing this jurisdiction stripping legislation, or not? Are you going to stand by your finding that um, the you know the detainees have habeas corpus rights? And then when Boumedien was decided in 2008, the court said yes, we find that the Constitution itself applies at Guantanamo. And so that was another, um, you know, sort of, that was the third and ultimately really last major loss for the Bush administration. And, but, you know, really, as you know, I think that the Brett Kavanaugh and others on the, who were formerly on the, um, or on the DC circuit court were kind of accurate in saying that there really were no, no court or there was only a handful of court ordered releases because, you know, even the Obama administration, when it came to power, appealed, uh, habeas decisions that went against the government. And so all of the people who've left Guantanamo, for the most part, left because they were released by executive branch decisions, rather than because the executive branch complied with court rulings. Sociologist Lisa Hajar is my guest. We're discussing the war in court inside the long fight against torture. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, you start the book, Lisa, The War in Court, with a description of the targeted killing of Osama bin Laden under circumstances where he clearly could have been captured. Can you describe the unforeseen shift toward targeted killings as being a result in a sort of perverse way of some of the victories against U.S. state torture? So the war on terror really begins with capture, detention, and interrogation as the strategic centerpiece. You know, as I had said, like it was a war for information initially, and that's you know sort of within that context, torture, um, the torture policy was initiated and used on thousands of people. But it was because these lawyers, you know, ultimately hundreds of lawyers fought the government prisoner policies uh, in courts and won a couple of key battles that and the exposure of the torture policy that raised the cost, the political cost of capture and detention. And so Obama, because of the fact that he had come to office wanting to end, you know, wanting to end the torture policy, you know, it, it took it 
you know, and then of course when Obama ended the torture policy, you get Dick Cheney coming out of the woodwork and right-wing politicians and pundits condemning Obama for sacrificing techniques that work. And so, you know, they're clamoring to bring back the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. And so all of that, those events really make capture and detention politically untenable. So while targeted killing really ramped up in the last year of Bush's um, presidency in 2008, after Obama takes office, you know, as much as he's, you know, touts, you know, sees himself and was seen by, you know, sort of many Americans as, you know, a guy who was a liberal and supporting of the rule of law, he relied on the same kind of executive power reasoning that had underlied the torture program in his executive uh, branch uh, policy of targeted killing, which escalates exponentially during Obama's uh, two terms in office, both in terms of the number of strikes, the geographical scope of strikes. And so it was this idea so if, perfect, if earlier, any the, the assumption was anyone we have in custody is a terrorist and has no rights. That was the Bush's administration's original position. And under Obama and then subsequently Trump, it was like anybody we kill is a terrorist and has no rights. You know, and so it's just the, the shift from, you know, detention to killing, but the kind of same, you know, underlying logic that, you know, American intelligence is flawless and the, the executive cannot be fettered by law, you know, it just shifts from what you know torture to targeted killing well and and given that given that sort of bipartisan uh, unity on some fundamental level about the lack of rights to people who the state deems terrorists do you have any speculation about the possible futures of torture with this in the united states do you feel like the door is still open to that in you know into the let's just say near future? You know, it's something that I really constantly speculate as a citizen, as an educator. Um, the question, so, you know, for reasons that have to do with American political culture, there has, there was never a pro-torture constituency before the government authorized a torture policy and it became known. Now, there's a significant sector of the American public who you know, thinks torture is great, torturing people. I mean, it's the same kind of political malice against others, you know, that one can see, you know, in other forms of violence and repression. So there's a, there's a, you know, I mean, certainly Donald Trump ran for president in 2016 and won on a, a platform that promised to bring back the waterboard. So there's no lessons have been learned. But I do think that there have been some institutional lessons. You know, the CIA, um, you know, when Donald Trump said he wanted to bring back the waterboard, CIA basically was like, uh, no thanks, we've, you know, we've been burned by um, what happened, you know, what we did and, and, you know, the negative repercussions. And so, you know, in that sense, there's, um, you know, I would say that there's a lot of wiggle room for a future possibility of torture. But really, the the greatest problem is that the American public has not had access to the full truths about what happened and the costs to this nation. I mean, there have, you know, for people who follow these issues closely, you know, there are, it's perfectly possible to understand, you know, what happened and what it cost, not only the people who were tortured, but, you know, in U.S. prestige and standing in the world and so on. And the, the iconic example of this, you know, the, the, the lesson unlearned was a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence's investigation of the CIA's program. And that that investigation was launched as a bi it was launched as a bipartisan investigation in 2009 they you know using the CIA's own documents they basically determined you know they wrote a 6300 page report that the whole CIA program had been a failure that the CIA had lied about what they were actually doing and that no intelligence had no significant intelligence had been gathered through the use of uh, torture techniques but that you know, Obama kind of sided with with the CIA in you know sort of dragging his feet on releasing that report, and in the end, all that was released was a heavily redacted executive summary, which says enough in terms of what we can know. But when the Republicans retook control of um, uh, Congress in 2010, they had vowed to 
bury and destroy every copy of this SSCI report. And although they didn't do it, that report remains classified, hidden away, and there's only a couple of copies left because they did succeed in destroying many copies of this piece of American history. And so I think that that is something if people, you know, have an interest in, or you think that truth is a vital resource for healthy democracy, people should be demanding access to uh, or the declassification of that Senate Select Committee on Intelligence report, because that's a piece of American history that is unknowable as long as it remains classified and hidden away. Well, then, and let me end with this question, connected to that need to push for much broader information for the public about what actually took place. Do you think a reckoning also needs to happen. I mean, you mentioned John Yu, who was author of the torture memo. Although there were protests at UC Berkeley against him, you know, he still has a position there. Do you feel like a kind of campaign of reckoning is something that uh, is needed? Absolutely, because what we always say, you know, knowledge and acknowledgement, first knowledge, then acknowledgement are absolutely vital about, you know, especially crimes of state. And one other, you know, sort of track of um, legal actions that I trace in the book are the efforts to hold the intellectual authors and the perpetrators and abettors of torture, U.S. officials, military and civilian, accountable and to pursue justice for some of the victims. And on that regard, you know, it's like the Monty Python saying, you never saw the Inquisition coming. You know, courts just were unprepared for a government policy of torture. And so all of the accountability lawsuits that were brought in U.S. courts failed. They were dismissed either on the grounds that the the administration, and this includes the Obama administration, invoked state secrets, thereby, you know, courts saying, oh, okay, state secrets, let's shut it down. Or the idea that, um, you know, for those who were victims of torture, that they didn't have, U.S. laws did not provide them with any enforceable rights for justice. And so that's something I, I, I fear that the only way there will be a reckoning will be through scholarly work, exposés, and, you know, it's, you know, sort of, this is a chapter, and that's why I I would say, I hope my book makes a contribution. It's sort of a documentary, an analytical record of what happened and why, and at least if people know what happened, and if they at least know that there were people, mostly lawyers and, you know, uh, human rights activists and investigative journalists who did an incredible job individually and collectively to fight against the torture program. But, and and so we can see what happened, but really it was, you know, largely a failure of the public to not, um, you know, protest this. And I just hope that people will take the time to just learn about this history because we can't really understand the present without taking account of the immediate past and all of these events and developments that have occurred since 9-11. Indeed. Lisa Hajar, thank you so much. Thank you. Lisa Hajar is author of The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture. It's published by UC Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She's also the author of the books Courting Conflict, The Israeli Military Court System in the West Bank and Gaza, and Torture, A Sociology of Violence and Human Rights. And she's an editor at Jadalia and Middle East Report and is professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm-hmm.